0: As they're passing that, let me, let me have you open to Revelation chapter 2. And let me just remind you, we are in an in-depth study of the book of Revelation. Right now, we're studying the seven churches that are found in the book of Revelation. And these are seven literal historical churches that existed in Asia Minor. And if you don't know where Asia Minor is, think modern-day Turkey. And if you don't know where modern-day Turkey is... There's this thing called Google Maps, all right? You want to you wanna get familiar with Google Maps. And, uh, and, and these are seven historical churches that existed in, in the Apostle John's day. He's, he's writing this probably 90, 90 to 96 A.D. Uh, Jesus Christ is giving him this final revelation of the Word of God, and he's writing this letter to seven churches. And what's interesting is that Jesus Christ addresses these seven churches personally. And he has something to say to each church. He has some instruction, some commendation. He reveals something about himself for each of these seven churches. Generally, there's a correction that's involved. And then there's a challenge of how that church needs to continue in order to survive the, the, the spiritual climate that they're facing. And, and so we wanted to do this study because we're a local church. And and there's things that Christ wants to reveal to us about himself, and there's things that we probably are doing a fair job at, and there's some things we probably need to correct, and we need to have a mind to overcome the challenges that we face in ministry. And And so historically, that's what's happening. Let me also remind you that as we study these seven churches, John's perspective is that he's looking backwards from the day of the Lord. And so what John has been, in the book of Revelation, John has been transported forward in time to the Lord's day, the day of the Lord. And Jesus Christ tells John, write the things that you have seen, past tense, the things that you see, and the things that you're going to see. In other words, what has been, what is, and and what is to come. And, And so the book of Revelation for us really breaks down into three parts, past, present, and future based on John's perspective on the day of the Lord. And so, in your notes this morning, you see that through these seven churches, you also get a snapshot of all of church history, starting with the church of Ephesus, which would have been the period of time in church history after the death of the apostles. Okay, and that, we studied that the last couple of weeks. That takes us from 90 to 200 AD. This morning, we're going to study the church of of Smyrna, at least the first part of this message, uh, or the first part of the the text will be uh, this is part one of of Smyrna, and that takes us from 200 to 325 AD. And so we see that that through these seven churches, God is, is painting a picture of all of church history ending in the Laodicean church, which is the last church that's mentioned in the book of Revelation. As a matter of fact, Through the rest of the book of Revelation, the church isn't mentioned again until one obscure reference kind of right at the end. And and so the rest of the book deals with other things that come after the church age, the tribulation, the second coming, the millennial reign of Christ, and we'll get to those things later. So I just want you to know that if you walked in today and maybe today's your first morning or maybe you're tuning in online, we are kind of have laid some foundation that, that I want to make sure you get caught up on. Now, this morning we're going to talk about the church at Smyrna. And so I would have you look at Revelation 2, verses 8 through 11. Let's read the text. It's on the screen, and then we'll get started. The Bible says, Unto the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, These things saith the first and the last, which is dead and is alive. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan." Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. And so, Uh, Let me just remind you again, each of these churches, we're we're seeing something specific about the church. We're going to see five things out of each of these churches. We're going to see something specific about this church. And we're also going to see something specific about Christ. As we reveal what this church is and what it represents, we also see who Christ is specifically to this church. We see a commendation, we see correction, and we see challenge, and we see this for all seven churches. Now, of the seven letters to the seven churches, this one's the shortest, which is very interesting to me. There's just not, as far as word space and number of verses, when Christ addresses the church at Smyrna, it's the shortest message from Jesus Christ himself. But listen, just because it's short, it doesn't mean it's insignificant. As a a matter of fact, As we study this church and and we see the correlation in church history, this church experienced tremendous persecution. And I think probably the shortage of words was just to get to the point. Be faithful unto death. Be faithful unto death. And, And we'll talk about the historical context. Of these seven churches, there are only two churches that have no correction from the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's this church, the church of Smyrna, and the church of Philadelphia. So of all seven churches, Jesus had something that that church needed to correct. Remember, Ephesus, they had left their first love. But Smyrna, there is no such correction. With, with the church of Philadelphia, there is no such correction. And so, and so that's a positive thing that we can learn from. The other thing about Smyrna is there's no other mention of this church or this city in the rest of the Bible. So all you have is what's listed in Revelation. And so we can learn from that that, man, it was a historical church, it was a real church, it was a church that Jesus Christ intended to get his words to, and they needed it, they needed it very, very much because they were facing immense persecution. And so let's begin our study. Number one, let's talk about the church, and this is the church of Smyrna. Under the angel of the church of Smyrna right? and and the name Smyrna literally is translated from the same word as myrrh. Actually, you can even just see it in the name, right? Smyrna, right? It's the same word as myrrh. And, and that name may have been taken from the fact that that ancient city probably exported myrrh. Now, myrrh is a, is a bitter gum. It's a costly perfume which exudes from a certain tree. And the way they get myrrh from a tree is they wound the tree. They, they cut this, this tree, and as they cut it, and they have to be careful how they cut it because they don't want to destroy the tree, but as they make these incisions and these wounds in the tree, the tree begins to bleed this gummy substance out, this, this sap-like substance out, and it's waxy, and it coagulates quickly, and it hardens, and then harvesters go to that tree, and they break off those pieces of myrrh, and then they can, they can process that myrrh, into things like perfume or embalming type uh, material. Like it, It's commonly used for perfume, but also to anoint a body for, for burial with embalming. And so what we're going to see, what's interesting is, when you study myrrh, myrrh is always associated with death in the Bible. It's always associated with death. As a matter of fact, if, if you were to take your Bible and say, what is the first mention of myrrh in the whole Bible, which, by the way, is a really good way to study the Bible, if we want to know what myrrh is, let's go back to the first mention of it in the Bible. And you go back to Genesis 37, verses 23 to 25. And this is the story of Joseph. And what's interesting is when we read this passage, you're going to see an interesting picture in typology in the Old Testament. Look at Genesis 37. The Bible says, "...it came to pass when Joseph was come unto his brethren, that they stripped Joseph out of his coat, and his coat of many colors that was on him." And they took him, and they cast him into a pit, and the pit was empty, and there was no water in it. And they sat down to eat bread, and they lifted up their eyes and looked, and behold, a company of Ishmaelites came from Gilead with their camels, listen, bearing spicery and balm and, and myrrh, going to carry it down to Egypt. And so the very first mention of myrrh in the Bible, you have a man named Joseph who was betrayed by his brethren, who was stripped of his garment and cast into a pit to die. And and I think you already see the picture, because Christ, just like Joseph, Jesus Christ himself was betrayed by his brethren, the Jewish nation, and he was stripped of his garment. According to John 19 and verse 24, they parted his garment among themselves And he was left on the cross to die. And the very first mention of Myrrh in your Bible has a man named Joseph who is a picture of Christ being betrayed by his brethren, stripped of his father's garment, and thrown in a pit to die. Myrrh is always associated with death in the Bible, as, as a matter of fact, and, and I didn't give you all the references, but if you were to study myrrh through the Old Testament, you find that myrrh shows up seven times in the book of Song of Solomon, seven times in the book of Song on Solomon, and I didn't put the references in your note, but, but it's very interesting that the Song of Solomon is the song of all songs, I and mean, we had some awesome songs this morning. Man, God is the strength of my heart, man, when I feel alone, <laughs> He is my strength, Right? I mean, I mean, listen, we sang some amazing words, but there's one song that is the song of all songs, and it's the song of Solomon. And that song in your Bible is the love story between a Jewish king and a Gentile bride. And it's a great picture of Christ and his church and all throughout the Bible in that song. Seven times, there's mentioned myrrh. Why? Because without myrrh, there is no Jewish king and, and Gentile bride. Without myrrh, without Christ's death, there is no marriage relationship between the church and Christ. Myrrh is only mentioned three times in the New Testament. It's mentioned for the very first time at Jesus' birth. As a matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 11, the Bible tells us that they were coming to the house. They saw the young child with Mary, his mother. These would have been the wise men. And they fell down and worshipped him, and they opened their treasures, and they presented unto him gifts, gold, frankincense, and and myrrh. And you see it connected not only with death through the Bible, but you see it connected with Christ throughout the Bible. The second time it's mentioned in the New Testament is when Jesus was on the cross and the soldiers gave it to him at his death. Mark chapter 15 Verses 23 to 24, it says, And they gave him to drink wine mingled with myrrh, but he received it not. And when they crucified him, they parted his garments and cast lots upon them what every man should take. Again, myrrh connected with death, connected with Christ. Number three, the third time it's mentioned in the Bible, it's mentioned at Jesus' burial. And in John chapter 19, after the crucifixion, as as they've taken the body of Jesus Christ down off the cross, it says, Joseph of Arimathea being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him leave, and he came therefore and took the body of Jesus. And there came also Nicodemus, remember that guy, John chapter 4, which also came first to, uh, to Jesus by night, and he brought a mixture of myrrh, and aloes, about a hundred pound weight, and they took the body of Jesus and they wound it in linen cloth with the spices, as the manner of the Jews is to bury. What's interesting is that this church in this city is called Smyrna. It's connected with myrrh. It's connected with death. It's connected with Christ. And again, we won't get to the the the, the, the charge until next week or the week after. But Jesus, we read it earlier, he's telling this church, I need you to be faithful to the death. I need you to be faithful to the death. And, and for that church, there's going to be a strong connection to myrrh. There's going to be a strong connection to death. Which means that they're going to have to have a strong connection with Jesus Christ. Because if you're going to endure to the end, if you're going to endure to the point of death, you better know the one that has died and has risen again. And that God is going to paint an amazing picture for us this week and next week as we see the the trouble that this church experienced and yet their faithfulness to Christ. Number two, let's look at how Christ reveals himself to this church. Remember, each of these seven churches get insight into the person of Christ, and and that insight is something that they need to grab hold of to endure the persecution and trouble that they're experiencing. So look at verse 8. as as Christ introduces himself to this church, he says, These things saith the first and the last, listen, which was dead and is alive. And, And so Christ wants to just make sure that this church, this persecuted church that is charged to endure till their death, he wants them to know that, hey, listen, the one that's writing to you is the one that was alive, and he died, and now he's alive forevermore. In other words, you're not going to experience anything that I haven't already experienced, even to the point of death. Now, I'm telling you, that's a powerful statement, that that, that Christ understands our tribulation, our persecution, the opposition, and he wants to reveal his character to us so that we can have faith in him, even in the hard times. It's easy to be a Christian when there's no persecution. (laughs) It's easy to be a Christian when they aren't telling you you can't meet. or or limit your crowd size or, you know, it's easy to be a Christian when things are going well. But listen, when it gets hard, Christ wants us to be reminded we still need to be faithful. So two things that he gives them. Number one, he says, I'm the first and the last. And we actually covered this several weeks ago. I think it was like week six, where in verse eight, Jesus of chapter one, Christ says, I am alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. Chapter one, verse 11, uh, Christ says, I'm alpha and omega, the first and the last. And Christ is really revealing his omniscience through that. He's all-knowing. He is the first and the last. Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. And it's like Christ is saying, A to Z, start to finish, it's all me. The beginning and the end. The first and the last. Like, Like nothing was before me, and nothing will be after me. Because I am eternal. I'm omniscient. I know everything. He's every letter. He's, he's every word of God. And that's actually one of his names, the Word of God. And we covered all of that. I just want to remind you that Christ is the first and final source of all knowledge, all wisdom, all understanding. And we learned that about him. And this church needs to be reminded you need to, you need to believe the Word of God because the Word of God's eternal. And then he says, I was dead, and now I'm alive. Amen. And for a church that's facing persecution to the point of death, that's what they needed to hear. And, and, and can I just tell you like like we don't experience that type of persecution yet in this country, but there are places in this world today that people will meet together corporately, and the risk is their life. The fact that they will corporately assemble in a room, in an apartment with other believers in Christ, and sing with muffled voices, with a mattress against the door, and open the word of God, which is probably even illegal to possess, the risk for that will be their life. And Christ is just reminding this church, hey, listen, man, I know I know it's hard, and I know you're being persecuted, and I know you're suffering opposition. I did too even to the point of death. But let me just remind you, I'm alive. And so let's talk about that for just a second because, because we, need to, we need to appreciate the fact that Christ died. Look at, look at the, the notes now. The first key is this. I want you to understand this morning that Christ died, number one, for us. Romans chapter five and verse eight, it says, God commendeth but God committeth his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died for you, he died for me, and he died for the sin of the entire world. He died for all of humanity, not some select, predetermined group of people before the foundation of the world. He died for all of us. That's who he died for because we are all sinners. And the Bible tells us in Romans 6 and verse 10, in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. And and so number two, listen, understand that Christ died for us, but the reason he died for us is because he died for our sin. It it, it, it was for our sin, the sinless son of God, the perfect son of God who never sinned and never could sin because he is God. Well, he gave his life on that cross of Calvary because of my sin and yours. It's for our sin. You see, in many times when we share the gospel with people, sometimes we talk about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that's all true, but we need to be Really clear that the fact that he died is not just the gospel. That's not enough. He died for our sin because other men have died throughout history. And 99.9999% of them have died. And there's a few exceptions in the Bible, and, and those of you that study the Bible understand that. But the reason that he died was very specific, it was very purposeful, it was for our sin. And, and we need to understand that. And this church understood that. You you can't be saved if you don't understand that what separates you from God is your sin. And it has to be atoned for, and it has to be paid for, and it has to be reconciled with back to God. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 3, we learn that Christ died according to the Scriptures. Look at Look at verse 3. As Paul is writing about the gospel, and really, 1 Corinthians 15 is like the greatest chapter on the resurrection, man. It is so good. It it is so powerful. Christ's death wasn't just some random happenstance thing. It wasn't just a, a series of unfortunate events that ultimately concluded in an innocent man dying. It was actually prophesied and perfectly positioned according to the Scriptures. In other words, God said it's going to happen And it happened because God cannot lie. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 3, Paul says, I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins. Listen, according to the scriptures, and you you can just take it to the bank that the word of God is true. And if the word of God is true about Christ's crucifixion for our sin, it's true about everything else it speaks of. You can trust God's word. Christ had to die for our sin because it was prophesied. He died according to the scripture which shows us the power of God and the power of the word of God. And the devil doesn't like that and so now the microphone will start messing up. The fourth point is this. We need to understand that Christ will never die again. Romans chapter 6 and verse 9. Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead you better underline this in your Bible dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. And there's people today that would say, man, I hope Jesus comes back so we can kill him again. Friend, you will not be able to kill him again. You weren't able to kill him the first time. The reason he died is because he gave up his life himself. He gave up the ghost himself. He could have unleashed all of heaven's armies against this planet and those that opposed him. And yet he chose to lay down his life For our sin, and and I'm telling you, he did it once, and he dieth no more again because death does not have dominion over him at all. The Bible says in Acts chapter 1 and verse 3 that Christ, after his resurrection, he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. The resurrection is infallible. It is without error. It is without excuse. It is incapable of being a mistake. Because Christ showed himself alive by many infallible proofs. Now, if you have a Bible this morning that says that Christ showed himself alive by many convincing proofs, let me just encourage you that you can be convinced of something that's not infallible. But something that's infallible is incapable of having error. Something that's infallible is exempt from mistake. And and if you want an infallible resurrection, you you probably need an infallible Bible. And that's just something to think about. Christ didn't just convince the world that he resurrected. He proved it infallibly. It's without error. It's without question. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 18, Christ says, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive, oh, by the way, forevermore. Forevermore, amen. And I have the keys of hell and of death. And so because Christ's death and resurrection, because of his death and resurrection, I am eternally alive in him. And listen, as a church, Smyrna needed to hear, you may face persecution even to the point of death. But guess what? And the worst anybody can do on this planet to you is to take your life. That's the best shot they got. And actually, they just gave you the doorway to eternal life. They gave you the doorway to to a face-to-face encounter with Jesus Christ for all of eternity because your eternity is secure in Christ. You are alive because of his life. And even physical death can't separate you from the love of Christ. Aren't you thankful for that? I hope we understand that. Because, because can I just tell you, for the last two years, we've been really concerned about dying. We've been really concerned with it. But if we believe what God's word really says, death is nothing more than a valley. And you walk through that valley, it's a door. That's all it is. Hebrews 9 tells us that we have a standing appointment, it's appointed unto men once to die. But after this, the judgment, Psalm 23 and verse 4 says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. And listen, if I am walking through the valley of the shadow of death with a resurrected Christ, he's alive. Death has no power over me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. And listen, outside the rapture of the church, every person has a standing appointment with death. And I'm telling you right now, based on the authority of God's word, there is nothing to fear. There's nothing to fear because I know who has victory over death, hell, and the grave. It's Jesus Christ. I got to read First Corinthians 15. I I put it in my notes. I was like, "Ah, I don't know if we have time. We're going to make time. First Corinthians 15, verses 12 to 22. I know it's a long passage. The font may be a little small. Pull it up on your phone. Open your Bible. But can I just tell you, There's power in this passage. There's power in the resurrection. Because of the resurrection, there is nothing that I have to fear in this life. Look at verse 12. Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ be not risen, then our preaching is vain. In other words, we're just wasting our time this morning. Let's go eat some pancakes. And he also says, listen, if Christ is not risen, your faith is vain. What are you believing if he's still in a tomb? Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified that he raised up Christ, whom he raised up not, if so be that the dead raise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. Oh, and by the way, you are yet in your sins there is no resurrection, you're still in your sin, and there's still an accounting that has to happen between you and God. Verse 18, then they also, excuse me, uh, yeah, you're yet in your sins. Verse 18, then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. In other words, those of us that have family that have passed on in death, listen, if they have died and Christ is not raised, they perish. There's no guarantee of eternity there's no guarantee of heaven there's no guarantee of an afterlife there's nothing in this life only if we have hope in christ we're all of men most miserable and god is just trying to remind us that listen the power of the resurrection doesn't just have power in this life as a matter of fact if it only had power in this life it's still kind of worthless because you still die and i still die look at verse 20 uh, verse 20 but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For by man came death, and that would be Adam. And by man also came the resurrection of the dead, and that would be Jesus Christ. For as in Adam, how many die? All die. Even so in Christ shall all be made alive. In other words, if you are in Christ, if you are in the person of Jesus Christ, if you have received Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've been born again and experienced the new birth, you are in Christ. And being in Christ makes you alive. And so any pain, any suffering that this church will ever experience, you as an individual Christian will ever experience, Christ has already experienced it, even to the point of death, and he's come out on the other side victorious and this is the church that needed to be reminded be faithful even to death be faithful to death you see you see when you face tribulation and persecution you got to latch on to the one that faced tribulation and persecution even to the point of death and man once they know that jesus christ is alive and they believe that and they're they're comforted by the scripture well that gives them hope All right, let's go to number three, and then we're done, and we'll have our our business meeting. Number three, let's look at the commendation. Now, we're not going to get all the way through this uh, today. Uh, The more I prepared, the more I was like, okay, uh, we can't get all this this morning. So we'll have a natural stopping point in a few seconds. But look at at verse 9. Here's the commendation. Here's what Christ says to this church to, to encourage them on what they're doing right. He says, I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. That statement will will get reserved for next week. But let's talk about the first part of this verse. Number one, Christ says of this church, I know thy works. And so get this blank in your notes. Smyrna was a working church. They were a working church. And we saw this with the church of Ephesus. He says, I know thy works. And the work that they were doing is the work of the Lord. And can I just tell you? Jesus Christ knows the works of his church. He knows the works of his church. Any of you that have kids have ever tasked your kid with a, a task? Go clean your room. And then, like, you know, 15 minutes later, you see him out in the backyard playing or playing video games or watching TV or something like that. Like, you know, you know the task hasn't been done, the work hasn't been done. But you ask, anyways, right? Hey, have you cleaned your room? You, you kind of get the yes, no, nod type thing. You know, what I'm talking about the, uh, you know, if the labor's been done or not. You know, Christ is like that. Christ knows if we've done the work or not, He knows the work of His church. And listen, a church is to be about the work of the ministry. Okay, I'm going to say some stuff in a second. Now, amen or not, it's coming. I mean, a church is to be about the work of the ministry. If it's not a working church, well, it's probably not a good church. And by the way, it is of note that Jesus Christ knows what the church is doing. And listen, sadly, we've made church a place, buckle your seatbelt, where people daydream and doze off instead of getting their fill of doctrine to do the work of the ministry. See, many times in our culture of Christianity, church becomes a place where the saints come to sit instead of being sanctified to serve. You see, churches become a place where we provide comfort instead of expecting the crucified life. We have woke churches in our culture. We have watered-down churches in our culture. We have weak churches in our culture. We have weary churches in our culture. But Jesus Christ is looking for working churches. And, And the question is, are we working? You say, well, yeah, man, our church is knocking it out. Well, well, by default, if our church is knocking it out, that means individually, as members of our church, we're working. We're doing the work of the ministry together. Christ says, hey, listen, uh, hey, Smyrna, it's tough sledding. I know your works. I know I know you're serious about the ministry. I, I know that you're faithful with the work of the Lord. Number two, he says, I know your tribulation. And so get this key in your notes. Smyrna was a suffering Church, and again, we'll we'll get more into this in part two. But we're going to see historically, as well as in church history, this time period reflected in church history. This was a time of great martyrdom and persecution against churches and against Christians. And so Smyrna was a suffering church, and yet their suffering didn't prevent them from working. You might want to hang hang on to that one. Their suffering didn't prevent them from working. As a matter of fact, they were laboring in the work of God. In the midst of their tribulation, even to the point of death. You see, this period in church history, 200 to 325 AD, is one of the most difficult periods in church history because thousands upon thousands upon thousands of believers that believe what you believe gave their life because of what they believed. They were martyred for their faith. As a matter of fact, if you were to read Fox's Book of Martyrs, which I recommend every Christian have, and you read about the saints from this period of time, it'll blow your mind. It'll make American comfortable Christianity convicting. Acts chapter 14, I don't know, I don't know how we got to the place where we don't expect difficulty in the church of Jesus Christ. Can I, can I just say that freely? i don't know where we maybe we're living our best life now and we have enough false prophets that we started to believe in some of that garbage but all throughout history true believers in christ that do the work of the ministry have suffered acts chapter 14 verses 21 to 22 the bible says when they preached the gospel to that city and it taught many they returned again to lystra and iconium And Antioch, this is during Paul's missionary journey, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith, and that we, through much tribulation, must enter into the kingdom of God. In other words, hey, it ain't going to be easy, we're going to suffer, it's much tribulation. Now listen, that's not the tribulation period. We'll talk about the differences of that next week. But, but the point is that no matter what, when you live your life for the Lord Jesus Christ, when you allow his life to be manifest through your life, when you're about the kingdom work, well, there's going to be opposition. There's going to be tribulation. And that's no excuse to stop, by the way. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, and verse 4. For verily, when we were here with you, we told you before, that we should suffer tribulation, even as it came to pass. And he tells the Thessalonians, and ye know. And I I don't know if you remember the time that Paul spent in Thessalonica, but he was only there three Sabbath days. And because of the persecution and opposition, Paul got ran out of that city. And so he writes back to the Thessalonians, encouraging them to stay faithful in spite of the persecution and tribulation. And he says, hey, listen, we told you beforehand we were going to suffer. And you kind of know what happened. We got run out of the city, we got beaten, we got persecuted. Even as we open the book of Revelation, John tells us in Revelation 1 verse 9, I, John, all, who am also your brother and companion and tribulation. Now see, somehow we've moved away from biblical Christianity to, to some fabricated form of Christianity where we come to church and thank God we got coffee and donuts because that would be really hard on a Sunday morning without it. But man, we, we want to float through this life and kind of add Christianity to the rest of our arsenal of things that we're pursuing in this life. And, and man, if it gets really uncomfortable in this area, that's probably the thing that we're going to kind of, because we don't like pain. We don't like suffering. We don't like tribulation. We don't like difficulty. But listen, we're going to suffer because Christ suffered. And it's the fellowship of his sufferings that we experience as born-again believers in Jesus Christ. That's what it is. That's what it is. Now listen, the truth is, and there's two points in your notes, and we'll kind of wind this thing down in a second. Number one, sometimes we suffer tribulation because of our own decisions. Now I know nobody believes that in here, but listen, I I mean, it's always somebody else's fault, right? It definitely can't be, it can't be my decision that led me to this difficult situation. Uh, Do you guys remember the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, right? They, They had, they had everything they needed, man. God delivered them from Egypt, God gave them a leader. God gave them his word. God gave them provision in the wilderness. I mean, God gave them everything. He even gave them a land. If you get there, land flowing with milk and honey, that's the point. Get there, inhabit, defeat the enemies, and I'm going to bless you and be your God. That that was kind of the point. Deuteronomy 4, verses 30 to 31. We know the story. They didn't really do well with with that experience. As as Deuteronomy tells us, the Bible tells us, concerning Israel, says, when thou art in tribulation, and all these things are come upon thee, even in the latter days, if thou turn to the Lord thy God, and shall be obedient unto his voice, for the Lord thy God is a merciful God, he will not forsake thee, neither destroy thee, nor forget the covenant of thy fathers, which he sware unto them. And, And listen, there's a prophetic application to Deuteronomy 4, because Israel is going to go through a tribulation period. It's the time of Jacob's trouble. It's the great tribulation. And they're going to go through that because of their rejection of the gospel. And their rejection of Jesus Christ as their Messiah. In other words, they're going to experience tribulation because of their own decisions. So there's a principle. Galatians chapter 6 verses 7 and 8, right? Be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also what? Reap. Reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but of the, he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And, and listen, we've got to move from prophetic to practical. And, and here's a statement: Larry, a friend of mine, Larry Way, many of you know Larry, he always has this statement. Prior planning prevents poor performance. You ever heard that statement? I, you, if you drink a lot of coffee and eat a lot of sugary donuts, that's hard to say. Prior planning prevents poor performance. What that means is that my present pain could be a result of my poor planning. Anybody in here make dumb decisions other than me? Okay. The rest of you, I need to take some advice from you that you've never made a poor decision in your life. Okay. So, so the truth is, sometimes I end up in tribulation because of my dumb decisions. When I I walk opposite of what God's word has for my life, and I leave the principles and the promises of God to do things my way, well, I experience hurt and suffering and tribulation, and life gets really hard. Okay, well, can I just remind you that if you're in that situation this morning, like I've been in that situation before, can I just remind you that God is a merciful God? Can I I, I encourage you this morning that God is a merciful God? Number one, he's not going to forsake you because you're in him as a believer in Christ. He can't forsake you because you're in Christ. You're eternally secure in Christ. And so, number one, he's not going to forsake you. Number two, he's not going to destroy you. And your failure doesn't have to be final. You don't have to make one mistake at one strike you're out as a Christian. That's not biblical Christianity. Paul had struggles. Timothy had struggles. All the New Testament guys had struggles. You have struggles. Your pastor has struggles. So so God is not going to forsake us. Number two, he's not going to destroy us. And number three, he's not going to forget his word. So God has bound himself to his word. So, So if we are in tribulation because of our own decisions, what's the answer for us? We'll the answer we get out of Deuteronomy 4? Turn and obey his voice. It's repentance, right? It's turning back to God. Man, I got in this mess because I turned away from God. I got in this situation because I, I turned away from God's word over this situation. Well, just turn back to God and obey his voice. Let the word of God become authoritative in your life again. And that puts you right back under the blessing of God and the provision and the protection of God. Okay, number two, you say, well, man, uh, I'm trying to walk with the Lord, but I still am facing some hard things. Okay, well, number two, sometimes we suffer tribulation because of the decisions of other people. In other words, other people can absolutely affect my life. I mean, listen, Paul experienced tribulation at the hands of other people. They stoned him, they beat him, I mean, they drug him out of the city. I mean, listen, they absolutely had an influence on his life. And so you're saying, Jay, no matter which way it lands, I'm still going to suffer tribulation. Yeah. But you'd rather suffer being right with the Lord than, than suffer because of my own my own bad decisions. Does that make sense? Like, I, I would rather suffer and be under God's protection and provision than be outside of the will of God and suffer because of my own decisions. because there's grace under God's provision and protection. Listen, Paul, Paul said it in Thess- Second Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 45 to. Five. He says, "We ourselves glory in you and the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure. You see, there, there's an endurance that can happen because God gives you grace for the race. When you're in his will and you suffer these things, God gives you the ability to endure it. He says, that's a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which also you suffer. You see, the truth is, you and I can't control how other people treat us because of our stance for the gospel. We can't control how other people treat us because of our walk with the Lord. We can't control how other people treat us because our stance on the Bible or anything else. But what we can control is how we respond. And what we can respond with is faith. Acts chapter 5, verses 40 to 41. I mean, early on in the church, the early church, man, the, the, Christ taught those disciples, taught those apostles for 40 days. In Acts chapter 1, he ascended, and, and they go out like a firestorm, man, and start preaching the gospel. And I would like to say that everybody was receptive to that, but not so much. In Acts chapter 5, they caught those dudes, they beat them, and they threatened them and said, don't ever preach in Christ's name again. Now, that's enough for most of us that if we got, you know, we got whipped, we got a two-by-four upside the head for preaching the gospel, we're probably going to flinch the next time we have the opportunity to do that. Does that make sense? Can you look at their response, Acts 5 verse 40? To him they agreed, and when they called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. And they departed from the presence of the council, listen to this, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Okay, there's power right there. These apostles, man, they weren't full of themselves. They they just realized the tribulation we're experiencing is because of Christ. Well, I can rejoice in that because these are his sufferings. These aren't God chastening me because of my poor decisions or my backslidden heart against him. No, no, no. I'm still suffering persecution, but I'm suffering shame because of his name. And there's glory in that, and there's power in that. Okay, so, so this church was a suffering church. And then, and then next is Smyrna was a poor church. Christ says of this church, I know your poverty, but thou art rich. And can I just tell you, this church had no prestige no popularity, no prominence, probably no building, no musical instruments, no projectors, no screens, no church app, no sermon notes, no bearded preacher, maybe a bearded preacher, I don't know, no extravagant ministry, no coffee and donuts. They not have any of that. They were poor. But, but can I tell you something? They did have something. As a matter of fact, let me just encourage you that there's really only two things a church needs now we as leaders talk all the time and, and and i'm guilty as much as anybody we talk all the time about what we need we need to get the HVAC fixed we need new bulbs in the projectors we need uh, a new sound system we need to fix this hole this trap door in the stage that when you step right here it, it almost you almost feel like you're like one step away from hell because you're about to fall <laughs> through the bottom and we talk about everything that we need, man, and, and listen, can I just tell you, Smyrna didn't have any of this stuff. They didn't have comfy chairs, they didn't have stained concrete floor, they didn't have any of this, but here's the two things they did have. What they had was the Word of God and people. That's what they had. And can I tell you, that's all that any church needs, because these buildings can become a burden. This technology can become a burden. The devil is in the sound system. There is no doubt about it, man. I mean, listen, We almost every Sunday, he is the prince of the, prince of the power of the air, man. And, it, and it's, it's broadcast level. I mean, the demonic influence. I'm just telling you, the projectors are like demon-possessed. The church app don't work half the time. Our website is a joke. And none of that stuff is anything but a burden. These grounds, like as far as our property, listen, the property... Ugh, well, you've seen our property and you still come. I don't know why you come. But, but listen, we have busted up old HVAC units. We have high utility bills. We have lawn and pest control services that don't even work. Anybody smell the rat the last couple of weeks? Anybody smell that? It's finally kind of cleared. The dead rat is finally cleared out, finally. All of this stuff is a burden. But all we need to do the work of the ministry is the word of God and the saints of God. That's all we need. That's all we need. Now, now there's a sharp contrast between this church and the church of Laodicea. Because this church, Christ looked at this church and he said, you know what, man, you suckers are poor, man. You're just, you're in poverty. But you don't even know it. You got riches beyond measure. Well, there's another church a little bit later. That seventh church is the church of Laodicea. In Revelation 3 and verse 17, here's what Christ says about that church. And I know we're way ahead, but, but just listen. Here's what Christ noticed about that church at Laodicea. He says, Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. You see, there is a difference between Christ's perspective and our perspective. Smyrna would have said, We don't have nothing. And Christ says, You got everything. Laodicea would say, We got a full bank account, we got all these goods, we got everything we need. And Christ looks at that church and says, Bro, you ain't got nothing. As a matter of fact, you don't even know you're blind. Not only do you not have anything, you can't even see anything. And so Christ's perspective is different from our perspective. Let me let me just close in this verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9. We are rich. Not because of material possession. We are rich because of Christ. That's why we're rich. Look at 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 9. The Bible says, For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. That ye, through his poverty, might be rich. You see, if you're saved today, you're rich. Because what you have is not material possessions. What you have is Christ and he will outlast any temporal, corruptible treasure that you could ever have on this earth. You're rich because of him. By the way, that church in Laodicea, Christ wasn't in the church. He was outside the door. They didn't have him. He was trying to get in. They didn't have him, but Smyrna had him, and he said, you know what? I look at you, and I know you're poor, but the truth is you're rich. The truth is you're rich. Let's pray as we we consider these